This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the EMBASIC Podcast. Today's episode is all about documentation in the ED. This is not traditionally thought of as core content, but I've had a lot of requests to discuss this topic. Documentation is something that we do with every patient, so it's important that we get it right. Good documentation is key towards protecting yourself and the patient. In this episode, we'll talk about how to document efficiently and effectively in the ED and some tricks to the trade. As always, this podcast doesn't represent the views of Prince Department of Defense, U.S. Army, the Fort Hood Post Command. Before we go any further, I want to talk about my views on documentation. If you ask 10 EM docs how they document, you'll get 12 different answers. There is no one right way to document your patient encounter. These are just my views on the subject. Whenever we talk about documentation, it always seems to be framed in the context of, this is what you need to do so you don't get sued. Others will say that what you write down won't matter one bit. If there is some bad outcome, the plaintiff's attorney will take your chart, blow it up to a 100-point type, and take everything out of context. I fall somewhere in the middle on this. I don't think that there is such thing as bulletproof documentation, but I also believe that good documentation may save you a lot of time and headaches later. Good documentation can be the difference between just doing a deposition instead of going to trial, or maybe even not having to do that deposition in the first place. More importantly, good documentation is good for your patients because it can help you and anyone else treating them down the road know what was done and know what you were thinking. So let's talk about how to approach documentation from the beginning. As I always stress, it's important to read through the entire triage note and the triage vitals. You have to know what the patient told the triage staff and what their vitals were. You ignore this information at your own peril. Sometimes this information is wrong, but sometimes it will reveal something that you hadn't thought to ask. If you don't know what the triage note says, it can come back to bite you later, so make sure to read it. You also need to acknowledge abnormal vital signs. If you have paper charts, it's easy to circle any abnormal vitals. For electronic charts, there's usually a checkbox to say that you acknowledge the nursing notes and vitals. Don't just check this box without actually looking at the vitals. It is important to address everything that is done in triage. This same dictum goes for the nursing notes while you are treating the patients. Nurses and other staff will chart what was done for the patient, and you have to read these notes at some point during the patient's stay, even if it's just before discharge or admission. You need to make sure that there is nothing in these notes that contradicts what you are saying or doing. The issue with triage and nursing notes that always gets asked is this, what do you do if you strongly disagree with what was written? For example, What if the triage note says that your patient with an ankle sprain has chest pain? You talk to the patient, and they thoroughly deny chest pain at any point in their lifetime. They are sure of it, and they aren't sure why you're even asking. This is not a dig on triage nurses. They have an impossible job that I don't want to touch with a 20-foot pole. However, mistakes happen, and no one is perfect. Maybe that chest pain was documented on the wrong chart. Maybe the triage nurse accidentally checked the wrong box on the electronic medical record. These situations happen, and it's important that we address them in the chart. However, you can't address these situations if you don't know about them. It's like G.I. Joe, knowing it's half the battle, but in this case, it's pretty much the entire battle. So for the millionth time, look at the triage note, the triage vitals, and all nursing notes associated with the visit, and make sure to address them later in the chart. The first main part of the chart is the history of present illness, or HPI. For most patients in the ED, This should be about four to six sentences long and needs to tell a good story of why the patient is in the ED 
The easiest way to demonstrate this is to go through an example HPI. So here's one I've made up. 45-year-old male with chest pain, 4 out of 10 times 3 hours. Sharp, non-radiating chest pain that started while at rest, resolved an hour later without intervention. No aggravating or relieving factors. Patient and I shortness of breath, nausea, vomiting, diaphoresis, abdominal pain, comma, no history of similar pain in the past. This HPI is four sentences long, and it encompasses a clear but succinct history of what brought the patient in. It addresses the OPQRST questions of what was occurring at the onset, the patient was at rest, the provoking and palliating factors, none, quality of pain, which was sharp, radiation, none, severity, 4 out of 10, and the time, 4 hours ago. It also demonstrated that you asked the pertinent negatives, such as shortness of breath, nausea, vomiting, diaphoresis, and abdominal pain. You'll notice that in this HPI, it says nothing about his past medical history. Technically, that is a separate part of the chart, but there's nothing to say that you can't add in pertinent past medical history that would support your HPI. For example, for this patient, you can say 45-year-old male with NKCAD, which stands for No Known Coronary Artery Disease. You may want to mention some risk factors up front, but you don't have to. You could also mention whether or not this patient has ever had a stress test or cardiac cath in the past. For this patient, I wouldn't really care that they had an appendectomy when they were 10, but I would care about a previous MI in regards to the HPI. The flip side is true for a patient with abdominal pain. If they had their gallbladder out a week ago, that would definitely be something to mention in the HPI. But the fact that they had an MI five years ago is probably not relevant, at least not for this chief complaint, and at least not initially. Let's give an example of another HPI for a patient with chest pain who has a long cardiac history. 60-year-old male with hypertension and STEMI one year ago with chest pain that woke him up from sleep approximately one hour ago. Patient describes crushing substernal chest pressure with radiation down his right arm that is similar to his previous MI with diaphoresis and nausea. Stents placed one year ago with his previous STEMI. This patient is obviously a lot more worrisome for ACS, so that is why I put a little more history in his HPI. I could spend all day giving examples of different patient HPIs, but that won't be very productive. The tip here is that you want to include a complete story of the patient's chief complaint the OPQRST questions about any pain the patient is having, and any significant parts of the patient's past medical or past surgical history that is immediately relevant to their problem. The HPI doesn't need to be much longer than four to six sentences for most patients, but some will require longer HPI than others. This is where experience comes into play. The next part is relatively straightforward. The past medical history, the past surgical history, current medications, allergies, and a brief social history. You need to annotate each one of these in the chart, even the social history. While this section may have already been done in triage, it is your responsibility to recheck the patient's history to make sure it's accurate. For the social history, I will ask every patient whether they smoke or drink and how much of either. The purists out there would say that you have to ask every patient whether they use illegal drugs, but that seems extreme for the average ankle sprain. As with most things in emergency medicine, use some common sense. A sexual history for an 80-year-old with chest pain is probably not relevant, but a sexual history is very relevant for a young female with vaginal discharge. So for all your charting, use some common sense 
as to what is relevant and not relevant for that particular patient. I will be honest in that the social history doesn't matter for about 98% of our patients, but you can't bill appropriately for your charts unless you ask those questions. While good reimbursement should not be a focus of your charts as a novice EM learner, building good habits for later in your career is important. When you're in attending, for better or for worse, your level of reimbursement will have a direct impact on your career and future employment. It sucks that we have to jump through these hoops by asking asinine questions to every patient, but it's the way the game is played. My advice is to get used to playing the game now and check all the boxes. Most of it is good patient care anyways. Once you have done the HPI and all the medical history, you want to make sure you document and review systems. This is also a vital part of the chart for billing, as you cannot bill a chart properly without a complete review of systems. To start off, if you have a patient who cannot give a review of systems because they are critically ill, have altered mental status, dementia, or they're unconscious, that is fine. You just have to check the box that says that your history was limited due to patient condition. This relieves you of the responsibility of having to check a bunch of boxes. However, if the patient can give you a history, then you need to do a review of systems. The way I do this is to have a script of review of systems that I ask all patients. I ask the patient a general list of symptoms. Do you have any headache, fever or chills, nausea or vomiting, chest pain or abdominal pain, or any other symptoms? This will hit enough systems for you to be able to accurately complete a review of systems. Once you have done that, make sure to mark off which positives the patient has and cross out those that they didn't on the chart. After you do that, every chart should have a box that says, All systems reviewed and otherwise negative. You always need to make sure to check this box to ensure accurate charting and billing. Now let me say a little something about that statement for a second. If you look at the entire review of systems list, you will find bizarre and mostly useless symptoms that have nothing to do with the patient presentation. For example, does it really matter if your patient with dental pain bruises easily? Probably not, but it's one of the hemonc review systems question. So do you need to go through each one of these symptoms? The answer is no. Medicine would grind to a halt if every doctor did that. So that's why we have that box that says all systems reviewed and otherwise negative. It's a workaround for this ridiculous requirement to have a complete review of systems for every patient. Greg Henry is a famous EM physician who is well known for his talks on risk management. To paraphrase, even he will say that there are a few big lies in life. The first lie is that the check is in the mail, and the next big lie is that all systems reviewed and otherwise negative. There are a few other lies that may raise a few eyebrows, so I'm going to leave it at that. The point remains that this is a ridiculous workaround that we just have to live with. The next part of the chart is the exam portion. This is where you're going to fully document your entire exam. So this is where we get a little checkbox happy, and we start checking off all those little boxes at the speed of light. However, it's important to not get in trouble by checking off something that you didn't examine. However, if you look through the exam portion on just about any pre-made chart, you'll see that we pretty much examine all these areas of the body anyway. At the bare minimum, you should be examining every patient head to toe. This includes looking in the mouth, listening to the heart and lung sounds, palpating the abdomen and back, and specifically examining the area of concern. If you do all of these things, you will hit the important parts of the exam on the chart. There are certain number of systems that you have to examine to properly bill for a chart, but I won't go into that here, 
but here are a few pointers. First, don't check that you examined the ears and the tympanic membranes unless you actually did. Once again, we tend to get a little checkbox happy, and patients can definitely remember if you looked in their ears or not. Unless the patient has an ear complaint, you aren't going to look there, so make sure not to check that box when you're rapidly moving through the exam section of the chart. The other one is to not erroneously document rectal exams, pelvic exams, or GU exams unless you actually do them. When you are trying to be efficient, you may accidentally check these boxes. Make sure not to do that because the patient will definitely remember later on that they never got a rectal exam. One question that people ask me a lot is, what do I do with the neuro and psych areas? In the neuro areas, they usually ask about cranial nerve function and muscle strength. For the psych areas, the chart usually asks about whether the patient has normal alertness and affect. For example, you're not going to do a complete cranial nerve exam for a patient who has an ankle sprain. You need to check the sensation and motor strength of the affected extremity only, and you aren't going to test their cranial nerves if all the patient has is an ankle sprain. However, you're a provider, and you can tell that the patient with an unrelated complaint was able to ambulate into the room, they are speaking normally, and with a clear sensorium. I feel pretty confident saying that the patient with an ankle sprain has a normal cranial nerve exam, normal overall muscle strength, and normal alertness and affect if they walked in under their own power. When in doubt, don't check the box. This is something you have to figure out for yourself. On the flip side, someone with a chief complaint of left arm weakness and slurred speech, that same cranial nerve exam is extremely important, and of course you're going to do a complete exam on that patient. One thing that you need to make sure of when you document your exam is that you thoroughly document the area of interest, including any pertinent negatives. For example, let's say that you have a patient with vomiting and diarrhea. After doing your history and physical, you think that the patient has gastroenteritis. What I'm trying to say here is that you aren't worried about anything surgical like appendicitis. You need to document that this patient's abdomen is soft, non-tender, non-distended, without rebound, guarding your peritoneal signs, aka the pertinent negatives. Documenting the lack of these exam findings is very important because it relates to the patient's chief complaint, whereas documenting the lack of tympanic membrane bulging is important at all in this patient. The final part of your chart is the medical decision-making, or MDM. This is a part of the chart that is pretty unique to emergency medicine. In a few sentences, you have to briefly describe the patient what you did for the patient in regards to testing and their treatments, what you have ruled out, and the patient's ultimate disposition, home, admission, or transfer to another facility. Some people split this into two sections, an MDM section and a separate section that lists the patient's ED course with the specific treatments that you did for them. I just combined them all into one. Let's give an example of a patient whom you will be discharging who you think has gastroenteritis and nothing else serious. So, for example, the MDM for this patient would be 20-year-old male with nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, non-concerning abdominal exam. On Dancitron and PO fluids, patient PO tolerant, normal vital signs. Repeat abdominal exam normal. Doubt api, coli, perf, obstruction, based on history and physical exam, and multiple exams. Extensive conversation regarding return precautions and need for follow-up. This is a complete MDM because it concisely describes the patient, their history and exam findings, what you did in the ED, a repeat exam, what you ruled out and why, and the fact that you talked with the patient regarding what to come back for. 
I abbreviate extensive conversation regarding return precautions as EC, lowercase re, colon, uppercase RP. You can check the show notes for this. This is my own abbreviation that I made up for this part of the chart. You always want to make sure that you have a talk with every patient that you discharge, telling them what they should come back for and when to follow up with their primary care doctor or another provider. We'll talk more about this later. This example also brings up another point. Always document a progress note for any patient who stays in the ED longer than about five minutes. Document that they were better, or at least not worse, and make sure to document exactly what time you repeated their exam. This is especially important for patients in whom you do multiple abdominal exams. Now let's talk about a patient who's going to be admitted for a low-risk chest pain rule-out. 50-year-old male with chest pain, chest x-ray, EKG, and labs negative, aspirin given, admit for low-risk chest pain rule-out. That's really all you have to say about that patient if they're being admitted. It's clear that they had an appropriate workup for their chief complaint, and they got aspirin in case this turns out to be an acute coronary syndrome. You can put in there that you doubt PE or aortic dissection if you did testing for those conditions, or something in their history had you concerned about those initially. In general, you have to write a lot less for those patients being admitted than those you discharge. Also, in general, you have to write more for those patients that are sicker than those patients that are not so sick. One vitally important thing that you have to do is to make sure to document when you talk with consultants and make sure to record their name and the time you talked with them. Documenting that you spoke with orthopedics on call may not be sufficient five years later if you end up in a courtroom if you don't remember who you specifically talked to. You also want to document what the consultant recommended in regards to admission, outpatient follow-up, or any other treatments or testing. What about when you're having difficulty with consultants? How should you document that in the chart? This can be a tricky situation, but you need to do it to protect yourself. You need to be professional and not editorialize in the chart. Just state exactly what happened. Let me give you an example from my own practice. I've completely changed the situation and diagnosis of this patient, but the overall message is the same. I had a young male patient who came in with acute onset of testicular pain for an hour. On exam, he had a swollen left testicle with an abnormal lie and no cremaster on that side. I immediately knew that this was torsion, and I attempted a manual detorsion without success. I immediately paged the on-call urologist, but this was a weekend at a community hospital, so they were at home, not in the hospital. While I was waiting for a callback from the urologist, I sent the patient for an ultrasound. After five minutes of not hearing back from the urologist, I told the secretary to start paging them every five minutes. I then got a call from the ultrasound department confirming the diagnosis of testicular torsion with no flow on the left side. At this point, I was at the 20-minute mark after the first call. I called the answering service myself and asked the operator to start paging anyone else in the practice. At the 40-minute mark, I got a call back from the head of the practice who said he would come in if he couldn't get a hold of the on-call doctor. At the 50-minute mark, the on-call urologist finally called back and said that they were going to come in and take the patient to the OR. The urologist later told me that the patient had almost three complete rotations of his testicle, so manually detoursing it probably wouldn't have worked. This represented a case where the patient had a delay in a time-sensitive surgical condition. If the patient had any issues down the road, that could be attributed to this delay in care. I need to protect myself to prove that I did everything in my power 
to get a urologist to see the patient. So here's about what I documented. 20-year-old male with obvious testicular torsion on exam. Manual detorsion unsuccessful. On-call urology immediately paged at 10.30 and patient was sent to ultrasound. Urology was repaged several times for 20 minutes without response. Paged the head of the urology practice who said he would come in if needed. Ultrasound confirmed torsion at this time. After approximately 50 minutes of delay and multiple pages, on-call urology called back and came to the hospital to take patient to the OR. This note accurately reflects what happened in this situation without editorializing or being unprofessional. This was not meant to bash our consultants, but we also need to make sure to protect ourselves in case something bad happens in cases where you're doing everything that you can do. Give your consultants the benefit of the doubt. Maybe their phone or pager is broken or something else is going on that they can't answer their phone. Finally, let's talk about how to give good discharge instructions in those patients whom you're going to send home. I talked about this way back in the abdominal pain episode, but we should talk about it again because it goes hand in hand with documentation. First, as we talked about before, have a conversation with the patient about what you think the patient has and what they don't. Make sure to tell them to come back for certain signs or symptoms related to their chief complaint. Encourage them to come back to the ER if they have any new symptoms or their symptoms get worse. Make sure that the patient knows that you want them to come back if something changes because you actually want them to. It's just good medicine. Don't make the patient feel like it's a burden for them to come back to the ER. It's what we should do and we should encourage that. Make sure to tell them to take any medications that you prescribed as you prescribe them. If you prescribe any medications that could make the patient drowsy, make sure to tell them not to drink alcohol or drive while using these medications. Then document this in your chart that you gave them sedation warnings. Don't rely on pre-printed discharge instructions. I usually write SW given, where SW is my own abbreviation for sedation warnings. Finally, tell the patient when they need a follow-up with their primary care doctor. Tell them exactly when you want them to follow up. Do you want them to follow up in one or two days, two to three days, or three to five days? In general, tell patients to follow up in either two to three days or three to five days based on their chief complaint. If you want them to come back to the ER in 12 hours for an abdominal pain recheck, tell them that as well. Tell the patient if they're going to follow up with a specific doctor on a specific day. For example, if you split a fracture and they're going to follow up with the orthopedist on a certain day, tell them that or tell them to call the orthopedist's office the next day to set up an appointment. Once you are done, make sure to ask the patient and their family if they have any questions or concerns. Make sure to answer all the patient's questions, and make sure that they understand the importance of following up with another doctor after being seen in the ED. Finally, don't just rely on pre-printed discharge instructions without typing in your own discharge instructions. The pre-printed discharge instructions are very generic, and don't take into account the differences in each patient. You are much better off typing in your own discharge instructions. Type the exact same things that you talked with the patient about. Return to the ER for X, Y, or Z, new symptoms, or any other concerns. I take the extra step of putting the word ANY in all caps to emphasize it. If there are medications to take, spell this out and how to take them. For kids, type out exact directions on how to take acetaminophen or ribuprofen. If you are prescribing medications that can make the patient sleepy, type in all caps, no driving or alcohol while taking this medication. Then tell the patient when to follow up, 
Follow up with your family doctor in two to three days without fail. I also put without fail in all caps as well for emphasis. If the problem is more minor, I may say follow up in three to five days. If it's more worrisome, but still something you can send home without specific follow-up, you can say follow-up in one to two days. Some may argue that all this language is unnecessary and paranoid, but I think it's just good discharge instructions that show that you put some thought into them. Let's go over the big points of this episode before we wrap it up. Make sure your history of present illness is concise but complete. Include a short one-sentence statement on the patient's age, sex, and their chief complaint. Cover all the OPQRST questions in the HPI. Include the really important negatives in your HPI in regards to the chief complaint. Make sure to fill out all sections of the chart related to allergies, medications, past medical history, past surgical history, and limited social history in regards to drinking alcohol and smoking. The peers will say that all patients need to be asked about legal drugs. I will let you make that decision for yourself. Include a targeted sexual history if that's relevant to the chief complaint. Make sure to document a full review of systems from head to toe using a targeted format. Then make sure to check the box that says all their systems reviewed and otherwise negative. Make sure to document a full exam from head to toe, but don't document anything that you didn't actually do. We get checkbox happy and we'll check off exams that we didn't do. The biggest offenders here are the ears, rectal exams, and GU exams so make sure not to check those in error. Make sure to document pertinent negatives in the exam portion. For example, for abdominal pain, it's important to document the lack of rebound, guarding, or peritoneal signs. The next part of the chart is the medical decision-making section. Here you document what you think the patient has, what you did for them in ED in regards to testing and treatments, and what their disposition is, and also what you think that they don't have in regards to serious diagnoses. If the patient is being admitted, then this section will be pretty short. For patients that you are discharging, you have to explain that you don't think that they have anything serious, but you also need to explain why you don't think they have anything serious. For example, in a patient with abdominal pain, you might want to say that you doubt appendicitis, cholecystitis, perf, and obstruction based on history, physical, multiple exams, and negative CT if you did one. Make sure to document that you talk with the patient about return precautions and that they need to follow up with their primary care doctor. Make sure to document what time you speak with consultants and what they recommend. Document the exact time and the exact name of the consultant that you spoke to in order to avoid problems down the road. If you have issues with a consultant with them not returning pages or anything else, professionally document this in the chart with exactly what happened and the times that it happened. Finally, have a conversation with every patient and their family about their care in the ED. Make sure that they understand the workup and that they have had. Tell them the reasons to come back to the ED and make sure they understand that you want them to come back if anything is worse or if they have any red flag symptoms in relation to their chief complaint. Tell them how to take any medications that you prescribe. Give them sedation warnings about any medications that you prescribe that make them sleepy and document this in the chart that you told them this. Tell them exactly when to follow up with their family doctor or specialist. And finally, ask them if they have any questions and answer them. When you type up the discharge instructions, type out exactly what you just talked about. Don't rely on pre-printed discharge instructions. That's all I have on documentation. Please realize that everyone has different opinions on how to document properly, and these are just my opinions on how to do it. Take the general principles that I talked about and put them to use with your next chart. 
Don't hesitate to email me or post comments on the blog. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for the Inbase Podcast, signing off.